It turns out that people are very poor at risk assessment. In a Time article called Why We Worry About Things We Shouldn't, the author writes that we have a confounding habit about worrying about mere possibilities while ignoring the actual probabilities. In other words, that we build barricades against perceived dangers while leaving ourselves exposed to the very real ones. For example, why, do some why are some people more afraid of flying in an airplane than driving an extra long distance to travel? Because the, that's the possibility, but the probability is that regardless, the facts are that only 450 people a year die in the United States from an airline crash, commercial passenger airline crash, versus 35,000 people will die each year in a motor vehicle accident. So statistically, we don't manage that risk correctly. Or what can get you to decide that you will not have a hamburger for lunch? Well, it turns out in the United States that people are more afraid of dying from mad cow disease from eating a burger, and the, the statistical rate is about 500 people die from that a year in the United States, when the reason that you shouldn't eat something is because of the cholesterol in the beef, which contributes to heart disease, stroke, and about 2.6 million deaths per year in the United States. And so what we discover is that when it comes to risks, that we're often misguided in the choices we make. We don't know how to navigate through them. And I want to propose to you that we often have that same lack of clarity when it comes to Jesus calling us to take risks in our lives, that we don't know how to manage those things. And so Jesus may call you to rebuild this area of your life, to reconcile a certain relationship, to repair some brokenness that you see in the world around you, and so what we want to do is we want to be wise, biblically, and we don't want to make choices that are overly fearful or overly foolish in risk when it comes to our decision-making. And so the question we want to answer this morning is how does God call us to navigate risk for our good and for his glory? If you have a Bible, turn in it to Nehemiah chapter 2. You remember Nehemiah, I know some of you are not familiar with that book. Maybe some of your pages are a little bit stuck together. After, it's right in that section of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And the big idea of this book that we talked about is we're going through this series called Restore and how we can experience restoration from God by returning to God to rebuild what is broken. And I want you to remember we talked about last time, when God restores, it's not simply replacing, it's not a warranty that you kind of pay and you get the same item back. He doesn't simply replace things but we are looking for God to build something new, something better. That's what his restoration looks like. And so last time we met Nehemiah. He lived 445 years before the coming of Christ. And in his lifetime, 140 years before him, we heard that Babylon conquered the, the nation of Judah, destroying Jerusalem and deporting the best and the brightest of the Jewish people out of their country. And so as prophesied, though, God has a plan. He uses King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire to defeat the Babylonians, allow the Jewish people to return from exile, but the walls and the gates of Jerusalem, their capital city, their center of worship, remains in ruins. And that's the context of where Nehemiah is. But the question is, so what? Who cares if the walls are broken? You have to understand how important Jerusalem is to their people. This is where the people of God worship, 
so that the light of God can go forth to the nations. That is God's action plan, his mission during the Old Testament. And so, like Jesus, Nehemiah's heart breaks for the suffering of people who are in need of a Savior. And so he turns to the promises of God looking for restoration. And that continues to be our mission, our calling as a church today, that we worship Jesus, we want to bring his light to other people so our hearts break for the brokenness of this world, and we pray and we participate in God's restoration for both people and cities. And so as we do that, we want to learn from Nehemiah how he faced tremendous risks for the glory of God and the good of others. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, the king, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So let's stop right there. Now I want you to remember, I love this guy, Nehemiah. He is not a prophet or a pastor. He is an everyday working guy. In fact, I would say that his position in life is probably lower than most of us because he is a Jewish slave. And yet he rose to an influential role as the cupbearer to the king. So let me tell you what that means. And so what his job is, is he works for a foreign king, so somebody who's not Jewish, who has plenty of enemies who are trying to kill him because he is the ruler of an expansive empire across the Middle East. And so a lot of times people would plot to slip poison into the king's wine. And so what the king does is he appoints a guy who's either very bold or very stupid to drink the wine before he tastes it. And so the king will know that there's poison in the wine if that guy dies. That's his job. Now, I know that sounds like, oh man, that sounds like a terrible job. But actually, it's a position of high influence. Uh, a person like that got a lot of, of perks because they were considered a high-ranking official in the royal court because of what they do for the king. And so here's the question. How does this foreign slave rise to a position where the king's life is entrusted into his hand? It requires outstanding character. What I mean that by that is somebody who comes and serves, who has humility and faithfulness and dependability because the empire's most powerful man, his life is contingent on Nehemiah doing his job every single day. Nehemiah can't say, I'm going to take a day off or I'm going to pass on that cup of wine because if the king dies, he dies. And so Nehemiah does his job every day. He humbled himself to faithfully serve over a number of years. Year after year, this guy is drinking the king's wine before him. And, and I want to propose to you, if you want to be more influential, to be God's agent of restoration at your workplace, at your school, in the world, in your place of work and ministry and service, do you exhibit that kind of outstanding, consistent character like Nehemiah? And as we look at this verse, you'll notice that it is the month of Nisan. That's about March or April. And if you remember in chapter 1, it was the month of Kislev when he started praying about November, December. That means 
that this man of outstanding character and faithfulness has been fasting and praying. You remember that he said he, it said he started continuously fasting and praying in chapter one for three to four months now. Fasting, praying, nothing changing. And what I want you to see in this passage is that even when we are praying in God's will, we may have to wait on God's time. Does that make sense? Think of it this way. I heard someone once say that Moses from the, from the Old Testament spent 40 years trying to be someone. And then the next 40 realizing that he was no one out in the desert, remember? And then he spent his last 40 learning that God takes no ones and makes them into someones. Do you know how to wait for God in his timing? Some of us, you are praying for God's will, things that he actually wants to give you in your life. You want to get married or you want to get out of debt. You want to reconcile a relationship. And my encouragement to you is not to lose heart, not to give up, because in addition to God's will, we also wait on God's timing. And so Nehemiah, in this passage, he's persevering in prayer, in mourning, in fasting for three to four months, and yet even though he's feeling this incredible despair on the inside, on the outside, he comes up and comes to the king day in, day out of work, keeping up a happy face, because that is one of the things that his boss requires from those who come to work for him. So when he asks you, how are you today? What he's really looking for is for you to say, great, glad to be here. Love the long hours, love the meager pay, have the best boss. Right? And so you need to understand it this way. Back in ancient cultures, it's not like a modern dem democracy where, yes, you should be respectful to a president, but you have freedom of speech, you can say what you want. It's not a free society. In ancient cultures, the expectation was that you would treat the king with honor and adoration as if they were a god. That's the kind of authority they had over people's lives. And so if you didn't, if, if they felt like you were in their presence and that you were feeling, and they felt that you were unhappy to be around them, you, I'm the sun and the moon and the stars. You should be happy to be in my presence. What do you mean you're not happy? If they feel like you're unhappy, then they take it personally. They can have you executed. And for Nehemiah, there's plenty of replacements, potential replacements waiting in line for his job, right? So he knows his position before the king. He is, yes, elevated to a high position, but before a king, he's nobody. So in verse 2, he's been putting up a happy face all this time, but he has a rough morning, had a rough night maybe. He's overwhelmed by his despair, and so he can't seem to hide his heartbreak that day for God's people, God's kingdom, God's glory. And the king notices, it says in verse 2, What's with the face? You don't look sick, so the pain must not be physical. It must be emotional, something going on in your heart. In other words, are you unhappy to be here this morning in the court of the king? Now, it says in this passage, love the honesty of the Bible. Immediately, Nehemiah was gripped with this overwhelming great fear. Now, he's been a very faithful worker to the king day in, day out, year after year but he is a foreign slave, and that's the king. And if the king is displeased, that's, this is going to be the end of the line for Nehemiah, not just for Jerusalem, but for him. And so in this moment, it would have been very easy for him to shrink back and simply you know, say, tell, say to himself, you know what, I've been praying for four months already. You know, maybe this can wait a little bit longer I, before I bring up what, the issue that's on my heart. Maybe to a moment when I don't appear unhappy and ungrateful to this mighty king. But in verse 3, there's, it's just very clear to him 
that this is his God-given opportunity. He seizes the moment and says very humbly to this king, you are a great king. May you live and reign forever. It's not you, it's me. I'm deeply depressed because my hometown is in ruins. The walls and gates that protect people are destroyed. I wish that somebody would do something about it. Somebody maybe who has power and authority to make a difference about this. And so what do we learn from this beginning of this passage? That as Nehemiah is seeking God's will and restoration in prayer, that he both patiently waits on God's timing, praying for three to four months, then he boldly risks for God when the time comes. You catch that? You need both, the waiting on God and the risking for God. And you need to discern when. And you only discover it by connecting with the Father in prayer. And so, as Jesus gifts you with his heart, maybe with his heartache for restoration in our lives or in our world, are you in a season of waiting or risking? You need to discern. Is it time for you to sit down and be patient and prayerful more? Or is it time for you to stand up and speak up and get moving? The only way you'll know is if you're connecting to the Father in prayer. Now, this is an incredibly dangerous moment. How is the king going to respond to what Nehemiah is saying right here? Just pick up in verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So what we see happening is, verse 4, Nehemiah He has been this hardworking, loyal, sacrificial uh, servant to the king. The king likes him, but he's a busy man. And so he cuts to the chase. What do you want, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah, here's his moment. He has to act quickly or he's going to lose the opportunity, maybe even lose his very life. So what does he say? What does he do first? I know what I would do. (coughs) Excuse me. He shoots up a prayer very, not our first response to a situation. He shoots up this very short prayer. You know it's short because you do not keep the king waiting. You don't be this awkward guy standing before the king. Okay, he's asking me, what do I want? Hold on, hold my beer, and then you stand silent for five minutes. Uh, Let me just pray. Uh, You know, uh, if that happens, the king's like, what is wrong with it? Get this idiot out of here and have him executed. So probably... His prayer is something along the lines of, God, give me the right words, give him the right moods, don't let him kill me, amen, right? Very short. Verse 5, he looks at his non-Christian boss. After he prays, asking for God's favor, asking for God's protection, asking for God's wisdom and guidance, in that brief moment, if it pleases the king, here's him being humble before this king, if I have found favor in your sight, has he? How has he been doing his job? He works hard. He's faithful. He's not that Christian who surfs the internet all day at work or is uh, engaging, gossiping about office politics on company time. When he goes to work, he's there to work. And if you do a good job and they know you love the Lord, then they'll like the Lord because you're doing a good job. 
But if you're a jerk for Jesus, you're not winning anyone over, right? So Nehemiah has found favor because he's humble, because he's faithful. And so he asks the king, please send me to go rebuild. Now, I want you to understand what a big request this is. Years ago, if you know anything about the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of connected as one book. Years ago in Ezra chapter 4, 13 years ago when, when, when God called Ezra to, to lead a group of people uh, into Jerusalem, there were other people who wanted to rebuild Jerusalem. And so they made this same request to this same king, Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes issues an edict. There will be no rebuilding, no rebuilding the city, no rebuilding the walls, no rebuilding the houses of worship. I forbid it. That was what happened. Ezra chapter 4, verse 7 through 23. And so what's happening here is Nehemiah, he's like the butler in the White House who kind of wanders into the, the, the Oval Office and comes to the president, and the president says, what's on your mind? Well, I don't like your foreign policy in the Middle East. I'd like you to give me a promotion. I'd like you to send me as an ambassador, and I'd like to go rebuild the city. And I know that you issued a decree, but I think you're wrong, and you need to reverse your foreign policy decision. The butler. In that moment, you either really believe in God, or you are really eager to meet him, right? And so... Now you know why Nehemiah is so afraid when he's presenting his request. This is a big deal. This is not just a suggestion. He is counteracting uh, what, the, pres what the, president, the king has already uh, decreed as a law. And so, verse 6, here's the moment. The king is pondering these things in his mind and his heart. Something is happening. The Holy Spirit of God is doing something in him. He turns to ne Nehemiah and says, how long are you going to take? How long will it take? How long are you going to ask off from work? And Nehemiah tells him. And then the king responds. Now, you can catch this detail. It says that Nehemiah tells him how long he, he needs off from work. But we don't discover until chapter 5, verse 14, that it took him 12 years to rebuild the wall. 12 years, paid leave. And the king says yes. So the question is, how did we get here? How did this happen? <laughs> I know some of you would like to have paid leave for 12 years. Here's the key. Let's jump backwards. Did you notice in verse I paused for a minute to just emphasize it. But what happened in verse 4? The difference. Nehemiah paused to pray very briefly. Why? Why did he do that? Did, hasn't he already been praying and fasting for three to four months? This is an important moment. The king is asking him something. He needs to ask, act. He needs to move immediately and start pushing forth the plan. You see, Nehemiah knows that this is too important not to pray. And so the point for this part of this section of scripture is, yes, prepare ourselves for God's will and work in prayer beforehand, but we also need to face the risks immediately for God with prayer and when the moment comes. So the prayer beforehand, as well as when that moment comes, and the way I want you to think about it is as we seek God's plans and his restoration in our lives and in our world, we need to understand prayer. That it's not just preparation, but it's ongoing conversation for the work of God. And so we need to pray a lot. Nehemiah prays three to four months, then shoots up this bullet prayer, and we need to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 tells us it doesn't have to be long. It can be short. Nehemiah kind of does both, 
And so he prays for months continuously, and then he shoots up this kind of short arrow prayer in front of the king before he opens up his mouth. And so we often overcomplicate it, so I want you to think about it this way. God is a father. We're his children. And like a good dad, you can talk to him anytime about anything. That's what Nehemiah does. And so sometimes it's long and you're pouring out your heart before God. Other times it's short and to the point. It's just, thank you, God, or help me, God. There's no formal structure that you have to follow. We have to remember that simply God is our Father. He loves us. And so we feel free to talk to him anytime about anything. And I confess for myself that after I became a Christian, I was never very, I wasn't great at prayer until uh, I think what made things, made more sense to me when I finally became a dad. That was the turning point for me because I think I really came to understand that, you know, my kids, they come to talk to me about all kinds of things, right? Little things and big things. There's long conversations about, you know, my little pony and then short conversations about, you know, ridiculous things. And I've learned to love them all because I love my kids. And so understanding what it's like to come before God, whether when you have long needs of heartbreaking pouring out your despair like Nehemiah for four months or when you are in immediate danger and you need to make a decision and you shoot up a short thing to God, he listens. Because Jesus says to us what? To call God what? Abba, our dad, right? And that he's available for his kids 24-7 to provide comfort and guidance and strength that by faith in Christ, the sinless son of God who takes away our sin, Hebrews 4.16 says that we can approach the throne of God boldly to receive mercy, to find grace and help in our time of need. Now I know you're thinking, okay, got it. Okay, let's get, get to it. If, if I want to experience God's help and his will and his restoration, when my moment comes to take that risk, to take that next step, I just need to pray more, right? Verse 7. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors uh, of the province beyond the river, the trans-Euphrates, uh, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber uh, to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah lays out a plan. What has he been doing these last three to four months? Praying. And what has he been doing in that time? Planning. Prayer and planning go together. Many Christians don't seem to know that or don't get that. So, for example, some of us, maybe we want to lose weight. We want to get a new job. We want to start a shoot. Well, what's your plan? Well, I'm praying about it. Okay, good. That's a great start. But your praying should lead to your planning. Now, I know that doesn't sound very spiritual, but it's very biblical. As soon as the king asks Nehemiah, what's your plan? Nehemiah starts rattling one off. And you can tell that he didn't just make it up on, on the spot because he's very strategic and he's very specific with the details about his plan. And so like him, we ready ourselves for God's will by praying, and we also face the risks for God with planning. Prayer and planning go together. <laughs> I'm almost hesitant to ask for a show of hands. How many of you, your strength is praying and not planning? If I were to ask you, what's your plan? 
And some of you will say, I'm just trusting the Lord. And what you really mean is, I have no idea. <laughs> now, how many of you are planners, but not prayers? You're excited to make strategy and execute strategy, but when that fails, oh, better pray now, right? Or you pray this way, God, here's the plan, do it, amen. <laughs> or I have a great plan, God, you're welcome, right? So a lot of times we don't understand how they work together. So here's the key for you to understand Nehemiah. Pray so that you know what God wants for you. That's the heartbreak that, that Nehemiah received. Pray that God would reveal and guide the plan in every aspect of it, right? That's in the preparation of the plan. And pray to God in the execution of that plan, right? That's like Nehemiah. And so when the king asks him, what do you want? I got a plan. You see, Nehemiah, he gets one shot with this king. And if he responds, uh, I don't know, then the king's going to say to him, well, get a cup and get back to work then. So you can tell that he spends a lot of time thinking about this and asking God about this because he outlines, outlines strategic, specific, audacious requests. O king, I'm glad you're on board for me to go safely from the capital to Judah to do this job. I need you to publicly endorse me. I need you to make me ambassador. I need you to give me an official your authority with your uh, protection over me and... That was enough, verse 8. There's a lot of rebuilding to be done. I'm going to need a lot of wood. It's very expensive. I'm a slave. But you're the king, and you own this private forest reserve of your own, the best lumber in the world. I'm going to need some of that to rebuild the walls that you said could never be rebuilt in order to keep the bad guys out and in order to let God-seekers in to the city that worships the God that's not your God. <laughs> and so, could you give me a promotion, give me protection, and fund this plan at your personal expense. Also, could you throw in a house for me? Because I'm going to need a place to stay while taking time off from work for the next 12 years. <laughs> I can't believe, can you believe this guy, the nerve, right? Or the, the, the steel in this guy, right? And I would argue that it's not about his confidence, but his confidence in his God. Nehemiah has a plan, and he has these big, audacious requests. I, I wonder for how many of us, how often do we fail to plan and pray according to the size and the capacity of our great God? Nehemiah doesn't ask these things so that he will be rich, so that he will be comfortable, so that he will be successful. In chapter 1, verse 9, he asks these things so that the name of God would be made great and so that people would come to worship God and know the God of the Bible. And so Nehemiah prays, and he plans, and how does the king respond to him? It says, the king granted what he asked. Isn't that amazing? How did that happen, Nehemiah? What is Nehemiah's own words? For the good hand of my God was upon me. Not because I, Nehemiah, am so clever and I have such great plans. Not because the king so dumb fell for all my plans. Not because the king is so generous in helping people out. Who gets the who deserves the credit? God. That he poured out his unmerited favor and grace on this situation. Nehemiah isn't trying to show you how great of a leader he is. He's a humble man, a humble servant. He's not seeking his own glory. He's seeking God's. 
And so the way that Nehemiah kind of records all the events in this book, this is his kind of like his journal, his personal journal. And what he records is basically, I was scared to death. I prayed a lot. God is amazing. And so he knows that God revealed to him the need, that God is the one who broke his heart, that God is the one who gave him entrance and influence before the king, that God is the one who prompted the king to ask him how he's doing, that God is the one who gave him the plan, that God is the one who answered his prayers, that God is the one who changed the king's heart to reverse 13 years of foreign policy and pay for it. God did that. So when it comes to taking risks for God, and his will, and his kingdom, and his restoration in our world and in our lives. Some of us, we don't want to plan. We're scared that we might make God look bad, right? If things don't work out. But what we're really scared about is not making ourselves look bad if it doesn't pan out. And in the process, we make him look really bad because we didn't trust him. We didn't follow his plan, his way. We didn't prepare. We didn't plan through prayer. So we not only need to pray, we need to plan. Because the people who serve God are people who act. We don't just sit on the sidelines desiring something or daydreaming about something. We trust and we obey the Lord to move in the direction. And so we need to plan. I spend maybe about 20 hours a week, about a third of my work week, uh, studying and praying and preparing uh, and planning the messages, the Sunday sermon. Now, I want you to imagine if I just walked in here this morning and said, well, you know, I didn't bother planning the sermon. I just prayed about it. It would not go very well. Now, some of you are sitting here, well, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Thank you. (laughs) You need to plan and pray in order to serve God. But also, as my heart was breaking for this conviction, for for, uh, this message this morning, you know, I spent about, so I just told you that, you know, my work week's about 60 hours, but um, as I was working on this sermon, I also felt the heartbreak of the Lord come upon me. You know, kind of, the, not, 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 I'm not any Nehemiah, but the heartbreak that God was convicting me of is that I'm so busy with ministry at times that perhaps, uh, not perhaps, he said very clearly, you need more restoration in your family. And so I started praying every night for my marriage and for my kids. I'm praying to hear God to point me to his plans. Reveal to me your plans. Empower me to live them out. and Give me the courage to do it when the time comes. And so the plan starts to unfold. Like it's very clear to to me that the Lord is telling me I need to invest in counseling for myself so I can build up my marriage. And that uh, the second part piece of the plan is when my wife asks me to be able to talk to me or to, to help her when she's working out, that I make myself available for those things instead of saying I'm too busy uh, with my work. Or uh, when I make a commitment to my, my son that uh, I'm going to play basketball with him on Saturday afternoon, even if the message for church isn't unfinished, even if the message for a wedding that same afternoon is unfinished, that I keep my work and, and sacrifice those two hours to take my son to play basketball. Because I will never find the time to do these things. You have to intentionally make the time. It requires planning. You have to plan for it if you want to be a faithful follower of Jesus. So what's your plan if you want to recover in your marriage? What's your plan if you want to be involved in the work of God? This year, I have a very strong conviction that Jesus is calling us individually and as a church collectively 
to participate in his restoration in each other's lives and in our world. And for that to happen, faith doesn't just think about trusting and obeying God. It has to take risks for God. Not by being fearful and holding back, not by being foolish and throwing yourself into fires, but instead we need to come to the Father in prayer. We need to patiently wait on God and his prompting. And we need to be willing to boldly risk for God and his promises. And when that moment comes, as God leads us and opens doors, that we're ready to face it with Jesus through prayer and planning so that we can show people not how great our prayer and planning is and how religious we are, but how great our Jesus is. Amen? So I'm going to pray for us, and you spend some time with Jesus as, the, as we start worshiping some more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that reminds us that you take people who are not pastors and priests and prophets, people who are everyday working people like Nehemiah, and you do great things through them. Not because he is such a great leader and so amazing in his abilities, but because he trusts you. He spends time with you. He listens to you. And then he acts when you tell him to act. God, we confess as a people, we don't pray enough and we don't plan enough. We don't know when to wait and when, or when to go. And so we ask humbly for your forgiveness. We ask humbly that you would draw us close to you again, and we know you will because you gave us your son Jesus, his shed blood to cleanse us, to draw us near to you, that we can boldly approach you just like little kids who love their dad to tell you anything, to ask you anything. God, help us awaken your church from the slumber we've had over these past year and a half. Move our eyes beyond our own needs to those around us, in our families, in our cities. Would you convict us and change us in those areas of prayer, planning, waiting, or going that you're calling us to this morning? In Jesus' name.